0: Uh, page 6 of your notes, session 2, under Roman numeral 1, letter uh, D, is where we kind of finished off last week. I want to look a little bit at Ephesians again today, and a little bit at some other letters, and then we're going to go into um, considering what it means to, to love in the Gospel. So, let's go to Ephesians chapter... chapter 3 and review what we kind of hastily finished with last week. <clears throat> we've, we've gone through Romans pretty uh, pretty thoroughly, uh, kind of in a different perspective rather than just uh, considering justification by faith as we're used to. We considered uh, Jew and Gentile relations, and Ephesians has the same thing in it. So in Ephesians 3, <clears throat> we'd come from, you know, discussing... Jesus on the cross breaking down dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and breaking down that enmity that the law would point against us and against the Jews, against any human being that ever lived, having broken it endlessly. So then uh, Paul in chapter 2, verse 17, 18, 19 through 22, he says that the cross brought us together in one body, put to death the enmity. Preach peace to those who are far and those who are near. there be Gentile that are far and Jew that are near to him. And through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And he mentions we're no longer strangers and aliens, but now fellow citizens with the saints. And uh, we're part of the commonwealth of Israel. And we're being built up as a temple also. So then chapter 3, verse 1, Paul had said, For this reason, what reason? that Gentiles are now now also being built into a dwelling of God by the Spirit. Then Paul says, verse 2, the stewardship that's been given to me for you, the Gentiles, the revelation made known to me, the mystery, as I wrote before in brief, and the mystery that he's talking about in verse 5 was revealed to the apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And verse 6, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, a key verse here now, fellow inheritors, fellow members of the body or the family, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus, now key phrase, through the gospel. So he's saying Gentiles are now part of all these things through the gospel. The Jews were called to steward these things before, to be a, a a prophetic picture, to be a type, to be a shadow, to be a nation that embodied the promises by shadows, like the sacrifices were all as a type and shadow of the ultimate atonement. But they were called to steward those things and be a light to the nations, to the Gentiles. But now through the gospel, we're a part of all those things. We're a part of the promises in the commonwealth of Israel. We're joined to Israel. So see, this is where people can get uh, fuzzy and and say, well, so technically we're Jews. (laughs) No, no, we're just a part of Israel, the original people that stewarded the oracles of God pointing to Jesus. And when Jesus came, he fulfilled just about everything because another subtle misinterpretation is fulfillment theology that Jesus already fulfilled everything so he's the true Israel. So now there's no such thing as Israel. Israel. Again, people would say, well, there's no distinction. Well, yes, there's no distinction in how we draw near to God by faith in the atoning blood of Jesus. But Jesus didn't fulfill every single thing yet, like the tabernacle feast still is to be fulfilled when God and man forever dwell together. That was just a symbol coming out of Egypt of God remem- his people remembering how God had called them out and now made shelters for them in the wilderness, it was pointing to the ultimate tabernacle of God a man together. So now the Gentiles, to be specific, through the gospel, are joined to all that Israel had stewarded as the, first, as the holy nation, the kingdom of priests. And Paul's saying in verse 7, he's been made a minister to specifically to the Gentiles. So then in verse 8 of chapter 3, in Ephesians, to me, the very least of all saints. <clears throat> so you could say, he's saying the holy ones, the, the Jews, by saying saints. Now, of course, we are saints too, as we see other places. But consider the context of what Paul's talking about. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. The unfathomable riches of Christ. And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery or how God's bringing about the fulfillment of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. So, then, when you drop down to verse 14, it makes more sense when Paul says, I bow my knees for this reason, before the Father. okay, Paul is like overwhelmed. I bow my knees to the Father. It's similar to Romans when he's been talking about Jew and Gentile, and the Jews have been hardened, so the Gentiles come in, the Gentiles come in and provoke the Jews, and the Jews come in again and are brought back into the olive tree. Oh, the depths of the wisdom of the knowledge of God. And he goes into worship. Well, again, Paul's going into worship and bowing his knees before the Father, through whom all the families, or the whole family, every nation or ethnic group is what he's talking about, finds their name and finds their their purpose. So he's making that conclusion of Jew and Gentile together again. In heaven and on earth derives its name. Now that's an interesting thing that he's saying, in heaven and on earth, the living and the dead, right? The dead and the living. God, they all live to God. So Ephesians had said in chapter 1 already, He's bringing together, excuse me, heaven and earth under one head, and Jew and Gentile under one head, Messiah. So Ephesians, it, it talks a lot about, and Colossians a little bit, about bringing together everything under Christ. Heaven and earth, Jew and Gentile. So the living and the dead. So he's making these distinctions of, of God's plan to restore everything to its design, his, its original design. Through the gospel. So then uh, we're grounded in love as the verses go on in verse 18 that we may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Now consider that with the Jews. We often take this prayer as just coming together with all believers, but specify it when you consider the context with all the Jews. We Gentiles can now come together and understand the depth of God's love with the Jews. Again, remember that litmus test. Jew and Gentile forever, different nations, different callings, same salvation. Marriage, forever, separate people, but united as one. All as a man, all as a woman, all as a different person than each other, but one. Jew and Gentile, same thing, okay? And we could say, ultimately, God and man. (laughs) that were supposed to be one completely at odds on a grand scale. Drastically different. God's holy, were not. But now, Jew and Gentile brought together, drastically different, but not according to Christ. Man and woman in marriage, drastically different, but not in marriage. (laughs) You see? Still maintaining their distinction, but now unified in purpose. So this is the point of Jew and Gentile. So when we come together with the Jews... We know the love of Christ in such a deeper level because of how different the Jews are and how different Gentiles are. The beef we have with each other comes to the forefront. So we talk about love a lot, and we're going to talk about that today, in a vacuum or in kind of without any kind of handles because we're so used to loving at a distance. Especially the bigger our gathering is on Sunday mornings, the greater distance we have of learning how to love. We only know certain things about people so we can come to quick judgments, right? But when we come together with people, we know why, we, we, we know even more of their, their weaknesses, but we also know why behind them. We also know their strengths and their benefit, and we also are able to know ours better because actually when we see other people's problems, it's actually a mirror that we're coming up close to our problems. And that's why we're so quick to go like that, because we're trying to go like that, <laughs> and cover our issues by pointing at others. And this is love. This is what love is in the gospel. It's so radical that it actually stands in front of the mirror and wants to change what it sees, and not walk away and be, a, 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 be deluded, but be an adorer of the word. That's love. So when we come together with all the Jews, <laughs> just consider that. As Gentiles, and for them it's come together with all the Gentiles. God forbid is what comes up in their mind. Come together with all the Jews, we go, well, I suppose, comes up in our mind. I suppose we can patronize them and kind of, eh. God has a purpose for you too. In the age to come is the typical Gentile response. Comes in the form of what we call dispensationalism. Yes, the Jews have a purpose, but now it's the church. One day God will pick up, it's half true, (laughs) okay? He's cast off his people temporarily, but not forever, as Romans 11 says. So you see, but he he, he cast us off for a long time, and now we're joined in the gospel. Jesus said to this uh, Syrophoenician woman, I can't give my bread to the dogs, the children get it. She says, I know, Master, but even the dogs get the scraps from the Master's table. Oh, what faith you have, woman. Your daughter's healed. (laughs) Sounds arrogant and rude of Jesus, but he knew what he was doing. He knew what the Father was doing. Jews, Jews, Jews first. Go to the lost tribes of Israel. Don't go to Samaria. Don't go to the Gentiles. Then you come to the book of Acts. It's not until chapter 10 that the Gentiles are even touched. There's a reason for that. But now, in our ignorance, in our arrogance, our blindness, our self-centered, small view, we think that the Jews are cast off and judged forever. Just like the Jews had a problem thinking, well, the Gentiles have to become a Jew. And they could probably, very few Gentiles would ever be able to become a Jew. They had this pride and blindness. Now we have the same pride and blindness thinking, well, the Jews have been cast off. You see what I mean? You see how they work together? This is the eternal litmus test of our hearts, Jew and Gentile. So, coming together to, to see the love of Christ with all the saints. Then it makes sense when he says, verse 21 of chapter 3, when he mentions to all generations forever and ever, or literally in the Greek, it's translated. Of the age of the ages. So again, that that linear generation to generation to generation is how we understand history because then we understand God's been faithful all throughout history. Instead of splitting up history into seven dispensations, as the dispensationalists would do, we split it up into Jew and Gentile, and we split it up into law and grace. In a more small uh, level, than instead of splitting it up, that he dealt with man and Adam this way, he dealt with Noah and etc. Instead, we just keep it really simple. And God had the Jews, and God now has the Gentiles, and he'll have Jew and Gentile. (laughs) That's the the way God works in in history. So, to the age of the ages is a, a statement reflecting. God's ultimate purpose in bringing under one head heaven and earth and Jew and Gentile. So then, you know, everybody's pretty familiar with Ephesians 4, I'm sure. There's one Lord, one body, one faith, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. What's his point? Jew and Gentile. Actually, the, the Shema, you know, like yeah. you're Israel, oh, Lord, God is one. that one. What I heard is that, that one God, one, you know, one, one that, that is like, triggering in their minds like the Jewish Aha, Shema, right? a reflection of that that's cool that's awesome yeah. so there you have it right there so one lord is is clearly talking about um, Jew and Gentile he's one lord of both and again we don't want to drift into well then it doesn't matter right no it does matter to really understand the context and to embrace the purpose of God with Jew and Gentile there is distinction even though there's no distinction. <laughs> there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. God is rich in grace and mercy to all that call on his name. But there is distinction in that they're a light to the nations and we're to provoke the unbelieving Jews to jealousy. you got to have both. So then go back briefly to Ephesians 1 so we can have some clarity. Chapter 1, Verse 1 through 12 is all specifically talking about Jews. He's addressing specifically the call of the Jew and specifically talking about them. And we won't for time go into all that, but then look at verse 13. And you can see the transition. Paul says in verse 13 of chapter 1 of Ephesians, In him you also, who also? Gentiles after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So that language was originally, you'll be my holy possession, uh, Israel, if you come out and obey my statutes. Well, now he's saying, you Gentiles also are going to be joined to that same faith now. You are presently. And it's with a view by the foretaste of the Holy Spirit to the full redemption of God's own possession, the final resurrection, the final restoration of Israel and all the nations being blessed through Messiah in Israel. So he's speaking of that. So then for this reason, Paul says in verse 15, for in light of all that, Having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you, and your love for, (coughs) excuse me, exists among you Gentiles, and your love for all the saints, the Jewish saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? So all kind of saying the same thing. The hope of his ultimate calling of the age to come, after this life. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? The inheritance in the resurrection. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power? The point is, we're putting our faith in him to bring it all around. So it's all kind of saying the same thing with those three things, hope, inheritance, and power. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, authority, power, dominion, every name that's named not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, simply put, the goal of holding to this hope is to see God bring it all about. Okay? The main basis of our faith, of our belief, of our life, is faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. question is Why? why is the greatest of these love? That's the first question. Second question is, what's the significance of faith and hope if love is the greatest? So then the third question really is, how do they all work together? Because they all remain until the perfect comes, which isn't the canon of scripture, but Jesus himself. They all remain. So, what is love based upon Anybody think of an immediate thought of love is based upon what? Christ giving his life. Christ giving his life, okay. Absolutely. How does love show itself? Or how I'm sorry, flip it around, give the answer. How does faith show itself? Really? Huh? Through what characteristic? Okay, hope. Galatians 5 6. Somebody look it up. Yeah, yeah, works come out of faith. But what does Galatians 5 6 tell us? And what's interesting is 5 5 and 6 go together really well. Somebody go ahead and read that. Or but faith which worketh by love. There you go. So faith is seen through love. Look at the verse before. Look at verse 5. Somebody read that one. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. <laughs> you see that three working in a tandem? We through the Spirit by faith, are waiting for the hope of what? Righteousness. What does that mean? Aren't we justified by faith, and aren't we righteous by faith now? Yes. But what's the hope of righteousness then? Because Romans 8 tells us why do we hope for what we already have, but if we hope for what we don't have, we eagerly wait for it, right? the hope of righteousness is the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness dwells, Second Peter 3. The ultimate righteousness will ultimately be glorified with Jesus and be declared righteous in that day. Because our faith is not in our ability to be righteous, but in the atoning blood of Jesus that makes us righteous. And forgiveness causes us to live like we're righteous now. And we are righteous now by the spirit of adoption. And we are identified as sons by the spirit of adoption. But the spirit of adoption in the Greek is actually son placing. So ultimately, when we're in the resurrection and we see God face to face in Revelation 21:7, he says, "I will call whoever overcomes will inherit all these things, the wiping away of tears, no more death, etc." And I will call him my son. So we'll be sons, ultimately in the resurrection, forever. To sin no more, because son is a covenant term. Completely obedient to the Father. And we tend to kind of miss that side of the equation when we talk about sonship. We do, we magnify what we should first. The Father's gracious heart to receive us. But in light of that, what happens? We become obedient by love. We want to please the Father by the Spirit, not by our works. We're not trying to win God and His approval. He's winning us to His approval by mercy. Jew and Gentile, no distinction. God's mercy wins them to Himself. We don't win God's approval by our works. The Jews are exhibit A for that because he gave them not only the eternal everlasting covenant with Abraham by faith, but what other covenant did he give them? Covenant at Sinai? Of the law. And that law wasn't some kind of thing that they could attain to. But it wasn't like God was winking and going, watch church. These stupid Jews they will never get it. Covenant's with you, church. It was never about Israel in the first place. That's kind of a common phrase in the church. And again, it's half-truth, cloaked in malice. It's a cloak and dagger kind of thing. (laughs) It's really deceptive to say it was never about Israel because then, again, you're tossing out this practical timeline when you say it was never about Israel. And you're throwing out the faithful of God's, faithfulness of God's words to be able to always be true and fulfilled. He made a declaration to Israel, and he won't go back on it. That's Romans eleven twenty nine. The calling and gifts of God are irrevocable or without repentance; they won't be annulled. So God's faithfulness is understood in a context, instead of a vortex. <laughs> It's in a context of a people that proved that God's faithful by their unfaithfulness. And that's the same thing we do. We don't come when nothing in my hand do I bring, only to your cross do I cling. That's such a good statement. That's the truth. The Jews weren't a different covenant in the sense that they were expected to keep the law and were given free grace. The Jews were an exhibit A for all the human race in light of the law. In fact, that's what I want to touch on quickly as we, as we move on, is, is understanding the, the law and understanding um, uh, the, the, the forever... There's always been... People have always been opposed to God's law since Adam and Eve. So then, ever since Adam and Eve, people have tried to find a way to keep God's law. Every false religion, because the law is written on the heart of man, has made an attempt to appear righteous according to the law, even though they would never call it God's law, or they might not even mention God. Whatever religion it is, it's an attempt to find yourself in a different state than you are. Humans recognize across the board, even atheism, that we're not where we should be as human beings. They boast in progress. They boast in science. They have a caste system, basically, or a hierarchy, thinking certain people are not really valuable, and their life's pretty much a waste. Because whatever we find in this life and make it better is all that matters. So science and knowledge is their pursuit. The end is utterly nothing and hopeless, but they believe that we're not what we should be. Isn't that wild? The non-religion religion religion of (laughs) atheism Mm -hmm. believes that. Every other religion is trying to get to God. Only in the Bible does God get to man and bring them to himself and give a self-revelation of himself that can be trusted, that makes you want to draw near and not run away. Allah, you never know if he's going to be pleased with you. Buddha, it's basically trying to find something within you that you're never going to find, namely God. Hinduism is even more uh, at arm's length. (laughs) Everything is God, and there's new gods every day. You can turn over this table and find another god. Jesus is in the mix of that, but... He's not ultimate. All of these are attempts to kind of try to find a way to appease our conscience when the law is simply one thing. It's 12 or 10. There you go. 10, the the 10 commandments of the law are 10 barrels pointed at our head. Guilty. Death reigned from Adam to Moses, right? Romans 5. But wait a minute. The law produces death. Well, the the law exposes death. It shows you sin, which leads to death. The law is not death. It's holy, good, and righteous, Paul says in Romans 7. But through the law, I died to the law that I might live to Christ. You know, Galatians 2, Romans 7. The law came in representing God in his righteousness and in his faithfulness. It was a covenant with, with Israel that God... Gave the law. It was stipulations of a marriage. But it revealed how the wife of God was unfaithful. So, what happened is philosophy, human knowledge, and ingenuity started rapidly increasing with Rome and Greece. And some of the Jews bought into this allegorizing of the law is what Gnosticism really does. It, it says, well, the law is kind of an example of a moral code that we try to embody it. And what they did is they embraced that and lived that out. And after a while, they added Jesus as their icon or example. So when you come to Colossians, it's, it's talking about how Jesus really had a human body. Jesus came to remove the enmity of the law and to show you the circumcision of the heart that Moses was pointing to anyway, Abraham was pointing to anyway, was the cutting away of the wicked flesh through the baptism of Christ, that you be raised to new life. So Gnosticism and the law were two key things. So when you come to Colossians, he's writing to people being infiltrated with Gnosticism in a Jewish framework. So he's telling them, no, no, don't go there. Don't let somebody be your judge on the Sabbath, on a new moon, on what you eat, and all this and that. Do not handle, do not touch, don't live by that phrase. But Christ has been raised, and he represents you with himself. So set your mind on things above. You know, you've been born again is the idea. So now think on Christ, who's been raised, and think on him, and he will return. When he, he returns, he is your life, you'll be revealed with him in glory. That's another language for you'll have a glorified body like him. You'll be what a human's supposed to be as he represents. So he is our example in the sense that he went the way of the cross and we go the way of the cross, but he's not our example as though we can pull ourselves up from our bootstraps and kind of produce righteousness the way that he lived. As though we could become Christ. And there's a lot of subtle uh, deception that people teach on that kind of thing. But... The substance is the Messiah himself laid his life down. We put our faith in the atonement of his blood. We put our hope in his supremacy and his ability to bring them together under one head, heaven and earth, Jew and Gentile. So we live in love, having already lost our life with such a brilliant hope before our mind. If our hope is real and anchored in the holy of holies, like Hebrews 6 declares then our love is easier to just pour out in view of our hope because we've really put our faith in the atoning blood and not in our ability through philosophy and wisdom and knowledge like Gnosticism nor in our attempt to think we could uphold a moral code by making the law, kind of bringing it down to our level and then in other words kind of raising it up to, to point to others like, look what I've done Maybe you could become like me, kind of alienating other people. This is what the Jews had a problem of doing, and this is what we have a problem of doing. There's so much bad teaching in the church, and it comes down to how we view the law. The law didn't declare a man could become righteous. It declared that he couldn't become righteous. If the law was to produce life, then 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 our our call would be to live by works. But since it reveals death, it causes us to put our faith in someone else who did keep the law. So, all that to say, um, that's what I was getting at in um, the Gentiles joined to the hope, letter F on your notes. We Gentiles are joined to the true circumcision. We're putting no confidence in the flesh or physical circumcision, but rather by our new citizenship or commonwealth, as it said in Ephesians 2, we are called to attain to the resurrection from the dead. So Paul's in Philippians saying, we are the true circumcision who worship God by the Spirit. He's talking about how he used to be a Jew in uh, Philippians 3. Let's look at those verses. So in Philippians 3, verse 1, Paul gives his um, one of many conclusions. Like He, he sounds like he's going to close the letter, uh, similar to a lot of preachers, even myself. Okay, my last point. Okay, my last, last point. <laughs> so Paul says, finally, brothers, he's trying to bring it to a crescendo, and he says, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it's a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evildoers. Remember Jesus said on the cross, dogs surround me. Speaking of the religious order of the day, like wild dogs. (laughs) So beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. In other words, no confidence in our physical circumcision, Paul is saying, as Jews. But the true circumcision are those who worship in the Spirit. Verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, even in my lineage, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. According to a human understanding of how to, how to uh, put on a facade, pretty much. Verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted a loss for the sake of Christ. For in that, for then more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish. Dung. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, in the resurrection he's saying, to be found in Him, in the day, in the final day, as we'll see as it goes on, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ or in Messiah, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, like Abraham, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So, all that to say, he's just saying, God laid hold of me. God opened my eyes that it wasn't up to me to try to obtain a righteousness by works. And he showed me that, by what Messiah did in becoming obedient to the point of death, which he mentioned in chapter 2 just before that, which is a letter, like an email. (laughs) One of our problems in understanding the Bible is that we don't see it as like a letter and realize Paul was making a point through the whole thing. So chapter 2 butts right into chapter 3, and he's saying Jesus was obedient to the point of death, and then God crowned him, called him Lord, gave him the name above every name. So now Paul's saying, I rejoice in what? The power of his resurrection. And then he stops and he goes, I know that because of the fellowship of his sufferings. In other words, I'm learning to obey to the point of death like Jesus did. On the contrary, I actually have sin to deal with. So I'm being conformed to his death. Why? Because of the curse of death. The wages of sin is death. The payout of sin is death. But God subjected the universe to death and the curse in what? In hope. He subjected it in hope. So now we have a longing inside for that hope to be fulfilled, for death to be vanquished. Death is not our friend. Death is our enemy. As much as we like to say, you know, with comfort for loved ones and ourselves, when they pass on, well, they're in a better place. Yes, but don't let that be the full truth. They're with the Lord, but that's not their better place. They're going to come again with Him and be on a restored earth. Death is the final enemy. It's not an escape from this life. Subtle, but it leads to a whole lot of different other kind of thinking that's not biblical. It's actually from Gnosticism. Believe it or not, going to heaven when you die emphasis is not biblical, it's on Gnosticism. Because their belief was that if you dug enough into philosophy and knowledge and gained a superior elite knowledge that you would attain to some kind of status where when you die you'd ascend to heaven to be with the gods. You'd attain to some kind of superiority where you'd actually become One with the divine spark in you. The spirit inside you that won't die, that's not evil. Because the body is evil in its weakness and its inability. So Gnosticism would put people on two sides. Either they're cutting themselves to try to put to death their body by really ascetic, abusive stuff. Or they just take the statement, eat, drink, be merry, because tomorrow we die. Do whatever you want, because inside the divine spark is what what really matters about you. So just live it up, and then you'll ascend and be with the God. So there's the liberal side and the conservative side. Now the issue is, is it carries over to today. There's a common statement we throw around, and again, it's half true. We can contextualize it and make it true. It is true. But by itself, it can be an excuse. Well, God knows my heart. Think about that we're buying into that mentality. Well, there's a divine spark in me. It's just a subtle beginning toward going, men are basically good. Humans are basically good. No, no, no. We're depraved. We're wicked. And God does know our heart. So the good thing, and putting that in the right context, is that in our weakness and our weak attempt to please Him, He's pleased. He knows our hearts. He knows the good and the bad and the ugly. But sometimes that statement will blanket. The the bad and the ugly. Well, God knows my heart. Yeah, and the problem is, you don't. It's wicked and depraved. So, did you have, Jeff, did you have something? Okay. Your hand was up. I thought you were going to say something. Our heart is, is wicked, and unless we hold to the atoning blood of Jesus, like Paul's saying here, we won't attain to the resurrection of the dead. That's what he's saying. So I press on to take hold of that for which all came from God. Didn't come from me. What's he pressing on for? He's pressing on against his temptation to establish his own righteousness according to the law, like he said a couple verses before. So, in that sense, we beat our body, Paul says. In that sense, we buffet our body, we curb our. Jesus said, cut it off. In that sense, we cut off the hand or the eye that makes us sin. Allegorical, of course. <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense if it was literal. <laughs> so, But the thing is, with, with Gnosticism, they take it more literal. They actually cut themselves and deprive themselves of marriage and food and all for excuses of trying to believe in this philosophy that they could actually make themselves better on that side of Gnosticism which lives, it's alive and well today in uh, Christianity, unfortunately. So, Paul's saying we are joined to that. And that's the point, because uh, look at 20 and 21. This is how he closes the chapter. Verse 20 of chapter 3. For our citizenship, or that word to be commonwealth that we've been joined to in Ephesians 2, same word, is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior. So you see that distinction? Our citizenship's in the throne of heaven right now, but it's coming here. (laughs) We're alien and strangers on the earth, but there's a new heavens and new earth coming, right? So it's a subtle distinction, but it's important to train our mind to think rightly, think more biblical. From which also we wait eagerly for a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. So again, you get that language of the finality of our hope and our faith in the power of God to do it. So our simple response is, is love. We love because by the power of God, he's provided an atonement. He will bring about the hope and the fulfillment of all the promise summed up in Messiah. So, of getting redundant, we'll move, then that's the point of letter G, all those passages speak ahead of the redemption of the body, the resurrection, the glorifying with Jesus kind of language, born again to a living hope, when we see him we'll be like him in 1 John 3, all those passages you can read on your own connect to the reality of the fulfillment of hope, which was the original hope of Israel blank uh, hidden in the Old Testament, the resurrection. Roman numeral number two, the Apostle Paul declared these three remain. We've, we've uh, discussed much of that, um, but the key is that it's to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. The gospel is first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. Um, they are our enemies according to the gospel, but uh, beloved for the sake of the fathers, it says in Romans 11, so as Gentiles our call is to love our enemies specifically the Jews that don't believe. So in part one, letter A, review, we discussed our approach to the Scriptures, literal, historic way that accentuates the ways of God with His own people, Israel. They put their faith in His covenant with Abraham, the promissory covenant, the everlasting covenant, or the covenant of peace, it's called in Scripture sometimes. So in part two, sessions one and two, we discussed the specific hope of Israel and what it means for us as Gentiles to join that same hope And in this third, final part, we're looking at what true love is and our call to embrace our cross and bear it before the Jews first as we study the checkered history of this people who have suffered more than any yet have been preserved through it all.